Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. Um, as April introduced, my name is Claire and we're reading today from Luke chapter 24, verse 1 to 53. So bear with me as we uh, read through this. So in our um, Bibles, it's on page 1061, it's Luke chapter 24. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking to each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognising him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But they had hoped that he was the one, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more is that on the third day, since all this, this is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe that all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognised him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were our hearts not burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven 
and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord is risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus had, was recognised to them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do, you, why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of the joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in the name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Hear the word of the Lord. I wonder how you found reading week. Perhaps you've been caught up following election coverage. And if so, one of the phrases you'll hear bandied around by political analysts is the issue of a trust deficit. Apparently, many of us are short on trust in our political leaders or trust in our political parties or trust in our political system altogether. And while there's much to like about reading weeks, I I sometimes struggle with the spare time that they throw up. It's not always fun being stuck alone in my head at least. Uh, And that's because when I'm not swamped with classes and with marking, I can start to spot my own trust deficit and then to discover sometimes there's a trust deficit with God. Some random moment over the weekend, completely unbidden, the thought popped into my mind, what's the point? I know I'm not the only person who has such moments of doubt. I've witnessed it as a student. I've witnessed it in other students. And we ought not be surprised that at least occasionally and sometimes in public, we teachers pause and wonder what God's doing in his world what he might be doing with us in his world. And at those moments when you're experiencing a trust deficit, when I'm experiencing a trust deficit, we need a passage like Luke 24. I know that rule number three in my Gospels class is we are not automatically the disciples. And there are certainly ways in which we differ from the disciples we've read about this morning. But Luke does want us to see that they are experiencing a trust deficit and he wants us to learn from their mistakes. As we've worked through Luke's story of Easter in chapel over the last few weeks, we've been reminded that his is the gospel that wants to help believers to be really sure. In the final sermon before the break, Reese read to us from a number of passages across the New Testament And he also read various parts of Luke that remind us how Luke wants his readers to grow in their confidence. 
So along with the opening verses of this gospel, this closing chapter again does the same thing. Here's a chapter to turn to when we need to be more sure when we catch ourselves experiencing a trust deficit. I volunteered to preach on Luke 24, partly to round out our recent weeks on chapters 22 and 23. I also chose the chapter because I knew, I thought I knew its primary message. How familiar those words sound to us as Claire reads them to us. But closer inspection can show up some significant surprises. So let's look at those surprises together right now. The first and biggest and most persistent surprise throughout the chapter is just how hard it is for human disciples to digest God's supernatural works. As we read right through Luke's gospel, there are at least three major claims that Jesus makes that he would die and then be raised to life again. There are various other minor hints as well. And we readers should have every confidence that the dead Jesus will be raised back to life. And yet in the opening verses today, we see that the women didn't share that confidence. They're coming to the tomb laden with spices, looking for a corpse. And the angels chide the women for this. And indeed, unlike the other gospel accounts, Luke even takes the time to repeat here again that very promise that Jesus had made several times. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. What's so hard to comprehend about the meaning of these words? So it's helpful for us to recognise the momentum that our natural expectations can furnish We don't expect anyone to be raised from the dead, even if that person is Jesus and even if he's promised it multiple times. And we can see that same momentum playing out in coming scenes. The women return from the tomb to the 11 apostles and the other disciples. They've also heard Jesus' promise of these events. What's their response? No, they didn't believe the women either. The women's words seem to them like nonsense. And as we unfold the chapter, we unfold the same message again and again. Luke now shifts to another two disciples who've already heard of this morning's events, but it seems that Jesus coming back to life isn't something that they've entertained either. And Luke records enough of their thinking so that we can see where they've fallen short. They've witnessed those very events that Jesus promised would take place, that Jesus would be handed over to the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and be crucified. And despite the fact that Jesus has regularly added the line and be raised to life, and despite everything that Jesus has taught them personally, intimately, over several years, they haven't been able to surrender the momentum of expectations. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Now, I feel kind of embarrassed for these two disciples And I think that's how we're supposed to feel as we come to read this passage. They've pretty much got all the parts of the jigsaw puzzle, but they can't quite piece it together. And you and I, as we come to read this passage, have the bonus advantage of realising that they're even talking directly with the risen Jesus himself. But human nature is such that we struggle to accept some of the outrageous ways that God runs his world even when he's made some of those promises directly and repeatedly 
and bluntly directly to us. And that's the second surprise in today's passage. One of the great things about Luke 24 is that it keeps Old Testament teachers in business. So it's a great encouragement to us if you're here for Andy's survey class this morning or if you're with Lindsay working through wisdom or if Tim is trying to convince you that you should preach Old Testament as well as the new. And Jesus starts an Old Testament Bible study with our two friends on the road. He works through the books of Moses and then the prophetical material. He identifies that each part of the Old Testament has something to say about God's Messiah and his mission. And in the midst of that, here is a third surprise. It's actually a direct example of that second surprise. You and I would typically want to say that the solution to human questions and doubts is to sit down and study the text of Scripture. And we're smart enough to recognise that there's more to just reading out these words, there's more to apologetics and pastoral care than only an intellectual cerebral exercise. Yet we typically want to say that there are some cerebral elements involved and, in fact, there ought to be at least some cerebral elements involved. But it seems to be on this occasion, on Resurrection Sunday, that a solid cerebral lesson is not enough for comprehending all of God's outrageous game plan. Earlier in the chapter, the angels have repeated Jesus' words yet again. We're told that the women remember these words but they're not convinced by these words. Among the 120-ish disciples, not many appear to have had that light bulb moment and said, oh, that's right, Jesus promised he'd be raised to life. No, Luke records the general sentiment that places human experience and logic over even against divine instruction. And even here, walking along the road to Emmaus, Cleopas and friend can articulate all the cerebral elements of Jesus' teaching. They can recount his various personal testimonies and the testimonies of others who witnessed the empty tomb. They've even just had a personal Bible study through the Old Testament with Jesus and still they can't quite twig. And again, I'm rather embarrassed to discover this, partly because it works against my own preferred worldview. I'm heavily committed to my own cerebral, sober analysis of the world and of God's word. I'm heavily invested in you and your academic growth, not least in reading and interpreting the Bible, including the Old Testament. And yet, at least in these circumstances, a cerebral solution isn't enough. I want to say that there are simply some parts of God's game plan that are so much at odds with our expectations that we struggle to grasp them. Despite our best intentions, despite, despite our best study in the library, we still end up with some expectations about how we expect God should behave and we struggle if God fails to conform to our expectations. We can build up our own momentum and we can be stubborn to grasp God's truths. Part of me and probably part of you still want to protest, but perhaps these circumstances for the pair on the road to Emmaus are special. And it's true, we're told, that they've been kept from recognising Jesus. We might also protest that there's no evidence that they've yet received the Holy Spirit in the way that we have. And we do see some sort of special pleading on this occasion. So if you're becoming a little bit edgy about where the sermon's going, there's a tiny bit of relief, hang on to it. 
We find the same sequence that Jesus has used several times in the Gospels. Jesus takes bread, blesses it, breaks it, gives it to the disciples, and finally the two disciples get it. They race back to Jerusalem and they report in. By the way, on, the way, on their way back, Jesus has been really busy. He has also made himself visible to Simon Peter and everything is finally falling into place and we breathe a sigh of relief because everyone is finally starting to believe that it's true except that they're not. Read on with me. Right in the middle of this promising conversation back in Jerusalem, Jesus himself pops in. Jesus has been teaching the disciples for several years, including multiple promises of his resurrection. The women that morning have been reminded of this by the angels. The two on the road to Emmaus have been shown familiarity with this promise. Jesus himself has given them an Old Testament Bible study and eventually revealed himself directly to them and also to Simon So what happens when Jesus pops in and says, peace be with you? Human expectations and momentum still can't bring them to say, look, the risen Lord Jesus. Their minds look for any other solution. And so in Jesus' mercy, he worked through several more proofs of his bodily resurrection with them. So even before we finish the chapter, My mind is racing with so many questions and issues of possible application. If Luke wants us readers to engage this chapter and his whole gospel to be really sure of the gospel message, what should I learn from this chapter? What should we learn from this chapter? Well, one thing that I notice very starkly is that I need to keep my academic emphases in balance. Good study of the scriptures is great, but may not always be sufficient just by themselves. Again, though, we do notice that Jesus says there's great merit in taking the large crowd at this new point through yet another tour of the Old Testament. So please stay enrolled in our Old Testament classes. And please also notice that here is the warrant. As Jesus says, and as Luke shows in his gospel, and as Luke will go on to show in Acts, that the story of Jesus is the culmination of God's long-term Old Testament plans. But don't be dispirited if you find that your academic studies don't always sway your heart, if they don't always on their own satisfy your trust deficit. Another thing I spot is just how vulnerable we are to our own hopes and aspirations, to the momentum around us, whether from secular culture or from church culture, these expectations can still impede us from recognising when God's outrageous game plan does differ from these expectations. It's so easy to come to the scriptures and to read there what we want to read there. We see them saying what we want them to say. It's so easy to start to cast God and his kingdom plans along the lines of the strategies that we think God should be adopting. And then in his long-term plans and in our local experience, it's hard to accept when God does things his own way and especially if it's tangential to my own understanding or expectations. And so another learning point for me is that I need desperately regular reminders of what it is that God has promised, including some of those surprising and outrageous twists. How easily I can start to presuppose that God has promised what I really want him to have promised. 
I spent part of Christmas Day last year celebrating with another faculty family. And Mrs. Faculty told a sorry tale about one of her friends. Someone had shared with her friend that sentiment we sometimes hear at church. Keep trusting Jesus because he's always keen to find a believing husband for you. But the months went by, the years went by, and the friend didn't find a believing husband. And so the friend left the church disillusioned. And Mrs. Faculty summarised it perceptively. Her friend gave up on God because God failed to keep a promise that he'd never made. And that has me thinking about what other promises do I keep assuming, do we keep assuming that God may not quite have made in the words we think he's made them. The disciples heading to Emmaus have decided that God had promised the Messiah, yes, who would redeem Israel, yes. And we gather from other places that they've enhanced this redemption to include some kind of political or military rescue and certainly not the kind of rescue that brings a Messiah who must suffer and die. What other promises of God have I enhanced or tweaked or slightly misunderstood to my own ends? How much have I imbibed teaching or memes or songs that hint that God will always bring perfect peace, meaning that my soul must always find itself at rest? If God really loves me, then surely he has that ideal spouse and the perfect children in mind. Yes, we recognise that God might test some other special people, but surely I'll be blessed with children free of illness or disability. Of course, all of us have to face some kind of trials, but, but eventually it will be easy enough to persevere through them. Yeah, look, I recognise that I might need to face some kind of minor ailments, but I should be largely free of medical conditions and I'm looking forward to ageing and dying with largely free of pain. If I come to college and train for ministry, God will give me a ministry that's a clear calling and a comfortable and convenient choice. And if I ask with real amount of faith, then God will give me everything I ask every desire of my heart, and certainly everything that I think that I need. Now, maybe you're smarter than I am, but wow, I find it really hard to keep all of God's promises straight, to get all of God's promises right. I need others around me to bounce ideas off. I need others around me to sharpen my thinking and to keep me focused on what God has really promised, to slap me around and correct me when I start to go off those rails. Those of us who like to keep to ourselves or who live on our own need to be careful not to settle for surviving on our own. When we choose a family or when we choose friendship groups, we need to ensure a diversity of views and make sure that we don't choose only an echo chamber that tells us back or gives us back what we want to hear, what we expect to hear. We need to keep asking and encouraging each other with what has God really promised Time, of course, is against us. And in the closing paragraphs, even without going into them in detail, you'll see that Luke leaves us hanging just right for a sequel. He records yet one more time the truths he's been pushing right throughout the gospel and in this chapter, the Messiah will suffer and die and be raised from the dead on the third day. Yet now we add an additional twist as well. There will also be repentance for the forgiveness of sins preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. 
There's some mention of some promise from the Father, some power that will help these disciples to facilitate their mission. We catch the briefest glimpse of the ascension. And so the story closes for now. And we find that even as the closing credits play on the gospel, this is only the beginning of the adventure. Luke tacitly invites us to binge watch his next season where the book of Acts invites us ourselves to join in in telling out the greatness of the Lord. And there, when we turn to the book of Acts, as much as we've seen in Luke's gospel, we're regularly challenged to keep checking that we have God's promises right, that we keep seeing this long-term plan, even in surprising ways from the beginning of time. And we need to keep finding out what God has promised as we ourselves grow in these promises, as we preach them to all nations. Amen. So be it. Thank you.